This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, here in BC, we have something called the Landowner Transparency Registry. It means that the owners of a property have to be transparent. It can't just be a numbered company with opaque ownership. The wheels are turning on this, but the province did recently extend the deadline for pre-existing owners of property to file their paperwork. So the deadline is now November of this year. Experts tell us something like this, a beneficial ownership registry, is critical in fighting money laundering. Now, it's something Canada's trying to do at the federal level too, but there are some concerns about that. Joining us now to talk more about that is Rita Tritcher, who's a business columnist at The Globe and Mail. You can read her piece on this at globeandmail.com. Rita, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you talked about why Canada might not be doing this in the right way. What, what is that? What's going on? Well, I was concerned uh, when the mandate letters for cabinet ministers uh, came out. Um, obviously, this is uh, falls under the mandate of finance, but also industry and also national revenue because uh, this beneficial ownership registry uh, would help deter uh, tax cheats as well as money launderers and other types of financial criminals. But when these mandate letters came out for cab- cabinet ministers, which are instructions uh, on the government's p- uh, priorities, there were two words that were missing uh, from those instructions, and that was, you know, to create a, quote, publicly accessible beneficial ownership registry. They were instructed to create a beneficial ownership registry, but these two very important words, publicly accessible, were missing from the mandate letters. And that causes a lot of concern because the government has been uh, pretty diligent about including uh, that type of proviso in its previous communications uh, about its plans, including in last year's federal budget um, and, you know, in a recent statement that it gave uh, at a U.S. forum um, that was held by uh, Joe Biden, who who incidentally has made cracking down on shell corporations, a priority for his government, but also a key aspect of its foreign policy for the United States. Right. So your spidey sense got tingling because those two words, publicly accessible, what would be the point of doing something like this if you didn't make it publicly accessible? Well, that was my, the point of my column. And, you know, given that everything that comes out of the prime minister's office is vetted, double check, triple check, I mean, every word matters. They know that they know that the language is going to be parsed. The fact that it was missing um, sent a bad signal. Um, you know, I mean, what a thing to omit if, if it was an accidental omission. Um, so I asked them about it. Um, and we didn't really uh, get an answer as to why those two words went missing. Um, but they confirmed in their statement to me last week uh, that their intention is to create one that's publicly accessible. But I think we need to talk a bit about what that actually means. Well, yeah, because intention is one thing, right? Committed. There's all sorts of words that you could use to say (laughs) this will absolutely be publicly accessible, but they don't seem to be using those words, do they? 
No, I mean, their their statement, uh, you know, on, on Thursday did, you know, reinstitute those words. But, you know, they have I suggested in my column that they reissue their mandate letters uh, with those words put back in um, to clear up any possible confusion uh, about what Canada intends to do with this registry. OK, so how beneficial is something like this, Rita? Like, what is what is the point of doing this? Okay, so it's you know better than the system we currently have now. I mean, it's far from uh, from being perfect, and in fact, you know, a system that's uh, you know open to the public will allow the public to help the government uh, to be the eyes and ears of uh, the government and law enforcement and other authorities uh, to help crack down on financial crime that occurs in this country. The the lack of transparency that we have in this country is part of the reason why. Um, this thing, that financial crime flourishes here. So it may not be a perfect system. And the UK has had a system, Companies House, a business registry for quite some time where you can go in. It is publicly accessible. You can look up, um, you know, who are the beneficial owners of corporations. But, you know, the Financial Times was reporting last week that there are problems with their system too. So no system is perfect. But unless we have something here in Canada at the federal level that allows Anyone in the country or anywhere around the world, for that matter, to access, you know, basic information about who owns a business for free. And this has to be online. And, and you know, I, I, it's kind of ridiculous that I have to say that in this day and age. But, you know, anyone who's tried to use um, the court system, it, depending on which province you live in, you know, there's varying degrees of um, you know, court records being available online. It's a very frustrating process. So it has to be online. It has to be searchable. It has to be free at the very least. And there should be very strict pen- penalties for noncompliance. And, you know, and as I wrote in the piece, Um, People have suggested that there'd be um, a whistleblower tip line uh, for people to call out information that um, is patently false. And, you know, the the information has to be verified. Yeah. Everything you say, Rita, everybody who's listening agrees with you. Right. So (laughs) especially here in B.C., I mean, you're talking about people who've been complaining about this for years here in B.C. So there's definitely an appetite. But the one thing I think here in British Columbia that we have found is there is frustration even with our provincial government when it comes to dealing with the federal government on getting some movement on this. Why is that? Well, you know, it's one of these things that um, the, the federal government has neglected for many, many, many years. And, you know, the Financial Action Task Force came down really hard on Canada uh, many years ago in 2016 during its last review for not having any kind of a mechanism for being able to verify who owns private companies and, and pointed to that as a, a you know, extreme weakness in our um, money laundering, any money laundering regime. And so, yeah, I, I know that the situation in BC, um, this has been in the news. Um, it's something that has, you know, affected people in terms of their ability to get into the housing market. It fuels the opioid, um, you know, yes. horrible crisis that we're seeing um, out there. I mean, this has real life consequences for people, the lack of transparency. Um, but yeah, you're right. This this is a source of frustration. The government um, should have moved on this a long time ago. Uh, and I'm talking about the federal government now. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I've been yeah, <laughs> writing columns, urging them. Uh, to to make progress on this for quite some time now, for years. So what is the timeline like then? You said this was in the mandate letters. When is all this supposed to be set up? 
Okay, well, it says that they're going to try to do something by 2025. Um, now, to me, that that's a long way away. Yeah. And given that the federal consultation wrapped up at the end of May of 2020, look, I get there has been a pandemic um, and, and that there's a, the government is, you know, juggling a lot of, pro, you know, different priorities right now. But, I mean, that's always the case. And one of the things, though, you know, the United Nations has talked about how financial crime and money laundering in particular is going to, you know, is a threat to um, the economic recovery from this pandemic. So this really has to be something um, that they get moving on sooner rather than later. And at this point, we don't even know what they're planning. We don't even know what the definition of publicly accessible uh, will mean right. to the federal government. We will have to wait and see. Rita, thanks so much for your time on that today. Thank you. That is Rita Tritcher, who's a business columnist at the Globe and Mail newspaper. You can read her latest piece on this at theglobeandmail.com. But you know what? That's a, it's a conversation that I know we here in BC are very familiar with trying to fight money laundering, financial crime, especially when it comes to real estate and land ownership. So BC has one of these. It was set up by the NDP government. It's a, a land, a beneficial land ownership registry. And so essentially you can no longer hide behind a numbered company and own property. It has to be accessible to know who owns that numbered company, who is behind that numbered company. Now, they've extended the deadline here in BC for people who already own property at a numbered company, a corporation, to get that information in. So it's November of this year, but the registry is well underway of being set up here. Not the case in the federal government. They've said it's a priority. They want to get it done. But as Rita points out, we are still a long ways to go. This is Mornings with Simi. Will a young person today be able to buy a home in BC? That is the question that fuels a lot of the discussion about affordability in our province. The pandemic only made things more expensive, and not just in Metro Vancouver. It's fueled an, a new kind of suburbanization. Now, for more on that, we're joined by Matt Scheibel, who's a realtor with 460 Realty Inc. in Nanaimo. Matt, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Matt, what do you see out there? What's going on in the market from your perspective? Well, here on Vancouver Island, we're seeing um, a lot of different changes to the market that we don't usually see. Typically, our market on the island sort of always lags behind the greater Vancouver area. And when prices increase in Vancouver, we see similar prices, but they're a little bit smaller. And when sales activity increases in Metro Vancouver, we're seeing a similar increase, but again, smaller. Since the pandemic, that's kind of changed, whereas the greater Vancouver area in the last 24 months has seen a home price index increase of about 17%. Single-family home prices on Vancouver Island are up over 45%. Whoa, what is going on then? Who is coming there and buying? (laughs) Well, I mean, we've always typically been a little bit of a haven for retirees on the island. Um, Typically people, you know, young people move away. They go get careers elsewhere or people from all over Canada tend to move here in their latter years with their saved money and settle on the island just because of our our nice climate, our proximity to the ocean, just things like that. Now we're seeing a lot of even younger people who can now work from home because of the pandemic moving here a lot sooner. And we're seeing people not only come from greater Vancouver, but all over Canada. So people thought, oh, well, it's cheaper. I can now live somewhere else. But now that has resulted in the prices going up in all these other communities, right? 
Yeah, correct. I mean, you had Von Palmer on the show, I think, on Friday, and he said that in Metro Vancouver that Gen X and millennials have essentially sort of given up on the dream of single-family detached home ownership in Metro Vancouver, stating that, that they felt that it probably wasn't in the cards anymore. But I think that especially those young people, they're realizing that, well, that dream's probably dead in Greater Vancouver, dreams alive and well on Vancouver Island of single-family detached home ownership. So what are people buying? Is it, is it the single-family home? Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, typically what you're seeing is somebody will, somebody will sell something in Vancouver and either take that same amount of money or sometimes even a little bit more money and buy something substantially more suited to their needs here on the island and probably elsewhere in British Columbia as well, where prices are cheaper. So the, again, they're looking primarily for single family. We've seen a much larger increase in sales and prices of single family homes than we have for example, multifamily homes. But I think people are realizing that, you know, they could sell a townhouse in, for example, North Van or or something like that and come over here and buy a very nice single family home with a yard or or they're trading up a a more expensive home in greater Vancouver and buying, you know, we've seen a really large increase in our higher end stuff, the acreages, the waterfront stuff, things like that. It's so interesting though, Matt, isn't it? Because, you know, 10 years ago, or longer, we were having discussions about how the small towns of BC were were being emptied out by people who were moving to the urban areas, moving to Metro Vancouver, and all these people were leaving it behind. And now the opposite is happening. I think you're exactly right. That's it. I think that I think people. I think when you can't travel or any of that sort of stuff, I think people realize that. I don't know if it's staycations or something like that, but you know, day to day, they need to focus on meeting their needs with housing that way. And again, they can find something substantially better than they can in Metro Vancouver here on Vancouver Island. How is it changing the community then? Like over on Vancouver Island, what is changing? Is there such a huge influx of, of new people? I don't think it's really noticeable, no. I mean, I don't, think that, I don't think that at face value, you can sort of tell if the person that bought the house next door to you is a local Vancouver Islander, or if they're from greater Vancouver, I don't think there's much of a change whatsoever. I mean, we're seeing it get, you know, busier here on a traffic standpoint. The schools are actually busier than they were even four or five years ago. So we're getting a lot of, a lot of strain on our infrastructure. Right. Um, But it's, but it's, you know, it's fairly marginal. I guess what I find interesting though, Matt, is as you're pointing out, I can shop for a house in a suburb and I look at the price and I go, well, for that, I might as well buy in the city. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe we're getting to that point now. I mean, like I said, in 24 months, we're up 45%. So the prices are certainly converging a little more us compared to Metro Vancouver. Right. So do you uh, think still, we're going gonna... to... I still think there's some affordability here for sure. Okay. Do you think we're going to see more of this then? Are you thinking that this is, this is a new trend? Based on... based on, I mean, I, I can't say statistically, but based on the amount of phone calls that I get from people in the Lower Mainland... I don't think that this trend is slowing down in the immediate future. So what do they say when they call you? What do they want? Um, I, sometimes they don't really particularly know what they want. Sometimes they know exactly what they want, but a lot of times they're sort of in the feeling out process and it's a little bit of a longer timeline than some other people, but they just want to get the ball rolling because just overwhelmingly they're just unhappy with what they can get and what they can afford where they currently are. And they're just looking for 
a better option that suits them, their family, their kids, that sort of thing. Right. Do you think it gives suburbs a new meaning then? Because we used to think suburb is in driving to be able to drive somewhere to work. That's just not the case anymore. Yeah, and I think over here it's a it's a little different. I mean, a fifteen minute commute over here is is about as long as anybody typically has. And the other thing too is a lot of these people are keeping their jobs in Vancouver. Their employers have now invested in infrastructure, which allows them to work from home. So they do that. But one of the appeals of Vancouver Island, and I'm in Nanaimo specifically, if you still need to work one day a week face-to-face in Metro Vancouver, you're a 17-minute float plane from downtown Nanaimo to right in the Inner Harbor in Vancouver. So it's very simple. Well, we'll see. I don't think anything is going to change anytime soon. Matt, hey, by the way, any listings? Like I know right now there's an incredibly low number of listings out there. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Uh, no, I, I just to quote Vaughn Palmer again, he was talking about David Eby and all he said was supply, supply, supply. It's nice to see some people have the right idea as opposed to fixing this through maybe taxation or something like that. We just need to build more supply. We need a little bit more cooperation at the municipal level to allow that supply to to streamline the process. But until that happens, I mean, we just need everywhere needs substantially more units across all property types available. All right, Matt, thanks very much for telling us your story this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Matt Scheibel, Realtor with 460 Realty Inc. in Nanaimo, talking about what they have been seeing there. Have you ever tried looking recently for property outside of Metro Vancouver? Check out the prices. There is no more of a discounter guess or a, a bargain if you leave the Metro Vancouver area and try to find something. It is expensive everywhere. And that is exactly that. A lot of young people deciding we don't need to live close to work anymore. We can go work from home anywhere else in BC fueling this new type of suburbanization that we're seeing. Out there. This is Mornings with Simi. But it really feels like a mixed bag when it comes to people being able to book their booster dose. Some people are able to do it right away. Others have been waiting. And then they find that when they do go to book, there's no availability. Well, that has been the case, it feels like, all over the place. But we're going to talk to the owner and pharmacist at West Canada Pharmacy right now about what they've been doing about it. Imran Rajani joins us. Imran, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Sammy. Good morning. Good morning. What have you noticed, and has there been a lot of demand for getting that booster dose? Yeah, we've been giving the uh, COVID-19 booster vaccines uh, over the last few weeks or so, and the one common theme we've noticed is that um, all the patients that have been coming have been saying that uh, you guys are the only people we can get appointments with. It's been so difficult to get an appointment. Uh, I've been able to only book out in uh, early February. Some people said mid-February and also very far away from where they live. And I've noticed that because patients were telling me that, oh, I'm coming from Abbotsford uh, to Delta. Oh, I'm coming from North Vancouver. So people were coming all over the place. And I just noticed this is a common theme over the past few weeks. And I said, uh, this is not, um, it's not, it's not a good thing. Like we, let's see if there's something we can do about it. And um, that's what kind of prompted us to uh, basically take that information and see if we could you know, in- increase our capacity to kind of help more right. patients. So you emailed me to tell me about this. And so I mean, yeah. is, is you as one pharmacy, and then what can you do? How can you just like increase your capacity? What are you doing? So basically what I've got uh, is uh, basically got like-minded uh, pharmacists that were, you know, believe in this COVID vaccination drive, as well as some nurses as well. And we all got together to just, uh, you know, have a, a little bit more of a, we have a little extra like, um, 
clinic area that we could use to uh, give vaccinations. So we all got together so we to increase our capacity significantly that what we normally would be able to do. So we're actually able to handle maybe about four or five times what we normally would. And we're trying to do that for the, at least the next uh, a few months to kind of help with this vaccination drive to get as many people in as possible. So uh, we've gone together, got some extra people to immunize. And just so we have a significant increase uh, uh, our capacity to handle the, uh, the vaccines for these okay. upcoming so then this week then, how many slots do you have open? Like how many people can get a shot there? So basically this week we have opened up approximately uh, 2,500 slots. Uh, just yesterday evening I added it. I haven't looked at the counter this morning, but uh, I've added it. So capacity for this upcoming week from Monday to Sunday, we have about 2,500 slots available now. Boy, that is a lot. So what do you guys do? Like, how many people do you have giving out booster shots right now? We basically start, like, early in the morning. All the, for Basically, we start uh, about on uh, peak times. There's about five or six uh, immunizers at a time. And we start all the way at uh, basically 8.30 in the morning. And we run all the way until 8 p.m. at night, like, at different shifts. So we try to go all the way in. And uh, we try, just try to accommodate as many people as we can, obviously, by the appointment booking system. So if you go to the government website to get vaccinated uh, website or call by phone, you can actually go and uh, book in our pharmacy and then you'd be able to come in by appointment. Uh, and we just noticed that um, like a lot of people have just been uh, uh, you know, booking or some people didn't even know that they could, uh, that they could even book in because they had made their uh, reservations a while ago and it was like, you know, weeks right. out in advance. So, yeah, so you just wanted to get the word out there that, you know, you can get it in sooner. In fact, you can come even today if you wanted to get an appointment. There's okay. some slots over today, even to later on. Right. But, I mean, we have to let people know they still have to do it through the provincial website, right? But they can cancel right. their other appointment and then make a new one today or this week with you. That is correct. Yes, yes. So, they can look for another appointment. If they find one sooner, then they can actually book the, uh, you know, at our place or anywhere that's sooner. And then they'll cancel their old appointment. So essentially, the only the main criteria here is that in order to be able to book, you have to receive a, um, a, a like a text message or email from the government saying that uh, you're invited to book your third booster dose, or in this case, it could also be your first or second dose as well, because we're doing the first, second dose. But primarily, right now, it's it's been the uh, the booster doses. But you have to receive that invite. And if somebody hasn't, for example, uh, registered on the portal, it only takes a few minutes online if you have a care card. And for patients that don't have a care card, they can actually just call the, the uh, 1-800 number or the one 800 number and then get registered. And it's fairly quick. And then they usually receive an invite within like 20, 30 minutes or so for most people. Okay. So this sounds easy, but they have to find your pharmacy too, right? You're the West Canna Pharmacy in Delta. Some people are probably looking for places that aren't necessarily in their neighborhood. It might get them faster. That's right, yeah. So if they basically expand their search of saying, okay, uh, or by postcode, they'll be able to find our pharmacy. So we're on uh, 6935120 Street in Delta. Uh, so the way I always explain to people, like, it's, it's not too, it's a good thing that it's like right off the highway. So it's fairly easy for people to get through uh, in the surrounding cities. So people coming in from Surrey, right. Richmond, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty easy to get to. So. Okay. All right. So I'm going to spread that word on there. People need to get a shot that this might be the way for them to go. Imran, thank you so much for telling us about it today. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Appreciate that. This is Imran Rajani, who's the owner and a pharmacist at West Canna Pharmacy in Delta. So they've been hearing from a lot of patients saying, I can't get my shot, I can't get my shot. So they've really done a lot of work to open up some slots and really increase their capabilities. They have something like 2,000 slots available for your booster shots this week. 2,000 open appointments, but you have to find them through the provincial booking system uh, and check them out there. The West Canna Pharmacy at 6935 and 120th uh, in you know Scott Road, obviously, uh, and see if you can get in there. If you have an appointment that's like a couple of weeks away, you can cancel that and then book this one. That's something that I think a lot of people have been afraid to do because they don't want to lose that appointment. And you can get that booster dose faster if that's what you're looking for. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's talk about the issue of vaccine mandates for truckers. You no doubt have heard or read about this in the last week or so, because it seemed like there was a lot of confusion over what the federal government was going to do. Well, the vaccine mandate for truckers is now in effect in Canada. And some trucking companies are saying, yeah, they've had a number of drivers quit on them as a result. So what type of impact could this have on supply chains? A topic that, you know, here in BC, we've talked an awful lot about over the last couple of months. Could this have an impact on the already short supply of some items that we are seeing out there? Joining us now, Sylvain Charlebaugh, Senior Director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Sylvain. Good morning. So let's see, when you saw this story about the vaccine mandates for truckers, did you think it would impact the supply chain? Uh, when it was decided back in November, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I didn't thought at the time that the, that Ottawa would change its mind. Although uh, I would argue that stakes are much higher on our side of the border than on, on America's uh, uh, because we're in the middle of January, uh, because we do import a lot of, of, of products, food products from the U.S., 21 billion U.S. dollars a year, as a matter of fact, that's $72 million a day going through the border. Uh, 70% of that actually will go through the border on wheels with a trucker. So it's a lot of business. Uh, uh, for America, for the United States, stakes are not as high because they tend to buy ingredients uh, they can process at home. And so if they think that the, that Canadian commodities are too expensive uh, or not accessible, they'll just go somewhere else. So they have, they have way more options. Right, as opposed to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk to, uh, to truckers uh, in the United States, uh, they, they can go to Mexico, they can travel across the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is a huge market. It's 360 million consumers. We're only 38 million in the grand scheme of things, we don't really matter all that much. So, so if we are able to get more food uh, into our border, well, guess what? Transportation companies will probably charge more uh, as a result of this vaccine mandate because they, ha- they have to pay their truckers more because there are fewer of them. Right. The trucking industry was already in an employee shortage, a labor shortage, wasn't it? 
Exactly. So based on, uh, on numbers uh, we received from the Trucking Association, uh, they were down 18,000 before the mandate. Now, of course, as you can imagine, over the last few weeks, uh, the transportation industry has already been uh, readjusting based on the mandate. So if you're seeing empty shelves at the grocery store already, that's probably because already the transportation industry has already adapted to this vaccine mandate. And my guess over the next few months is that these spaces on shelves won't disappear anytime soon. So given that that's what's happening out there, then do we think that this supply chain problem is is going to get worse? Because it sounds like there were more truckers unvaccinated than we realized. Uh, no, actually, I would say that truckers will re- represent exactly what the population is. Uh, I don't think the percentage is higher. Uh, but their role uh, from a food system's perspective uh, is quite significant. I mean, in the U.S., we're talking about 125,000 truckers who aren't eligible anymore to come into Canada. 125,000. That's a lot of people. And so that's why I think uh, the, this vaccine mandate is just putting pressure on the food system at, at the wrong time because we're in the middle of January, and Omicron has already really violently impacted the entire food industry. If you talk to any food companies out there, they'll tell you uh, they're running uh, with 15 or 20% fewer people around to do the same amount of job. And you have perishable ingredients too. You have to move things along. Right. So you're saying we're going to be feeling the impact, not just from this trucking situation, but from Omicron overall. Absolutely. So there is a there is a there is a bit of a food distribution perfect storm happening right now. Now I don't want to scare your listeners. Uh, I think you're still going to be able to go to the grocery store and buy what you need uh, for 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 a very long time. The problem is that you may not find what you actually are looking for, what you want. So variety is going to be impacted. Freshness is being impacted as well. Yeah, I've noticed that already, actually. That's happened at my grocery store twice in the last two weeks where I went for one thing and I thought, well, that's not there. And they had a whole lot of one particular product. And then I went back the next week and it was the opposite. They had a whole lot of one particular product, but not the one that I was looking for the week before. Exactly. So that's why I think we need to shift our our expectations and be a little bit more patient. I think we'll be fine. We'll remain food secure. It's just we're not going to be as spoiled as we used to. <laughs> right. So we're going to have to change. what we're. How long do you think this could last then, Sylvan? Like, are we looking at the next year, two years until we get this sorted out? Oh, it's going to last a while. Uh, and uh, I, I, based on our calculation, it's, uh, this is not going to stop until probably the end of the summer. It's just, again, going back, this is just... This vaccine beta is playing with fire, essentially. It's not something we needed. Uh, now, if Ottawa feels that it's important to actually implement a vaccine mandate on truckers right now, fine. But it's ill-timed. Uh, I, I think it would have been better to wait a few months until we're over this Omicron raft, or whatever you want to call it. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Sylvan, thank you so much for your time. 
All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Sylvain Charlebois is a senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and professor at Dalhousie University. If you're wondering how many truckers are impacted by this, so according to the Canadian Trucking Alliance, they're saying up to 26,000 truckers who make regular cross-border trips will be sidelined. So that's 26,000 out of about 160,000 truckers who regularly make that trip. So they said Canadian trucking companies are adjusting by reassigning the unvaccinated truckers to domestic duties. But we'll see. Already you've got people calling in sick, as Sylvain said, at food companies and distribution companies. And I think it will definitely, you'll be seeing the impact. Have you noticed a difference uh, at your grocery store. I certainly have. There have been products when I go there and I go, that's weird. Why wouldn't they have this? But over the last couple of weeks, I've really noticed kind of more sections empty and every week you come back and it's something kind of different that is missing from the shelf. What have you noticed at your store? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little bit more about a story you've been hearing in the news this morning, and it has to do with Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden in Chinatown. They woke up on Sunday, the operators of the institution, to find that the Kiefer Street-facing wall had just been covered with a large amount of graffiti. Now, the facility actually shares a space on that block with the Vancouver Chinese Cultural Center. Now, the Vancouver Chinese Cultural Center also the recent target of racist graffiti. What is going on? What can be done about this? Well, joining us now is Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Council, to talk more about it. Thank you for being here. Hi, good morning, Jimmy. What did you think when you first heard this? Oh, it was my heart sank, but I think I'm getting to the point where I'm just angry more than anything, because in this case, and we have had, as you said, some incidents deeply troubling of racist graffiti. The Chinese Cultural Center is one example, and I, I can't repeat, um, and I don't think that we should repeat what was the photos that were hurled on the walls at the center there. But in this case, this was not racist graffiti. It was sort of tags, um, you know, nuisance tags from graffiti artists and more unintelligible, but it's just willful, ongoing, destructive vandalism to a community that's been hard hit. And it's not limited to Chinatown. I think people feel it really, really deeply when it's a cultural institution like this and when it's a community that's been hard hit. But this is a, um, you know, pervasive issue across the city of Vancouver. Okay, if it's a pervasive issue, then how do we deal with it? What do we do? So we've had some discussions at City Council, and we did put additional funding um, that we directed towards the Business Improvement Association to help with cleanup. But it's it's sort of a bit like, you know, dealing with a burst pipe, right? And the water keeps going out. You're dealing with the symptoms of the issue. I think the bigger underlying challenge is that, and I really believe that we've created an environment in the city um, where there aren't consequences and we sort of turn a blind eye and say, well, you know, it's subsistence crime. This isn't subsistence crime. This isn't somebody, um, you know, that's you know trying to survive and doesn't have food. This is just willful destruction. And I think that when you have the mayor that denounces his um, role as spokesperson of the police board, when you have, I have fellow city councillors when we were discussing allocating money for additional graffiti cleanup, suggesting that we actually give money to the taggers and, and pay them. Um, and, you know, ask them if they would, you know, do something somewhere else. Um, it, to me, like, we're just fundamentally approaching this from the wrong place. It's, it's morally and ethically wrong, and it's having a huge impact on small business and, you know, our cultural institutions and our cultural communities. So you're thinking a crackdown, more like what they did over in Nanaimo, would be more effective? 
Well, I'm glad you brought up Nanaimo because that was a really interesting case where they actually brought a civil action against a prolific tagger and they identified that in, oftentimes there's a few prolific taggers are the ones who are responsible for the majority of the damage. And in that case, um, that individual was prohibited from owning spray paint for two years. They had to pay a fine on a monthly basis to pay it down as they could. Um, they weren't allowed on public um, buildings that they had previously defaced. And, you know, they had to reflect about the impact of graffiti on the community and write about that. So I think that we need to really move forward on this and not say, you know, well, people are suffering from um, you know, challenges and everybody's stressed during the pandemic. Well, a lot of us are stressed during the pandemic, but we're not going out and tagging, causing thousands of dollars of damage on an ongoing basis. Right. So you're saying the pandemic is no longer an excuse? Um, I, I don't think it's an excuse. Like when the, it, it contributes to the feeling that people have that the city is decaying. Um, and when you are, when you get to that state, you're losing the battle. You're losing the livability of your city. Um, and it's a, it's a tipping point. It's a very visible demonstration of the underlying challenges that we have here in Vancouver. Yeah. So what can we do about this? It's, it's disheartening, I think, too, for anybody to just drive by or walk by and see that there. So from the city's perspective, what can be done? Well, I'd like to see us, you know, um, identify, as I said, these prolific taggers. Oftentimes there are some individuals that are responsible for the lion's share of the damage and really bring charges against them. I know, and I, I think that I was really pleased to see that the VPD brought charges against the racist graffiti at the Chinese Cultural Centre. That was a specific situation that involved a hate crime. Um, but I do think that we need to step up enforcement around some of these prolific taggers, um, and there needs to be some consequences. And we and we need counsellors not to suggest that, um, that that's, um, it, it's acceptable. Um, and, you know, we need to deal with the bigger social issues. We do need to deal with the bigger social issues, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to deface property in the meantime. Do you, well, do you think then, do the bylaws need to be upgraded? Is this a discussion for council? Is, are there not enough teeth, I guess, in the bylaws that Vancouver has? I think it's will. I think it's will to move forward and enforce. Um, you know, we have no problem as a city, for example, sending tickets to small business owners when they have graffiti and they get tagged on their business if they don't clean it up in a fast enough period of time. Um, and so I think that there's a will, certainly, <clears throat> to actually punish, in that case, the victims um, and the small business. Um, we need the same will to go after the folks that are willfully causing the damage. So how is this going to change then? Do you think this, because of this particular building and this particular attraction, that it'll get more attention? I do. Um, I think that sometimes we need to have these tipping points. Um, and we need to have these sort of really egregious situations that prove clearly that you know this is just it's just destructive um and and we need to step up and and call out our you know other my colleagues um and council all needs to row in the same direction on this one because it's it's all of our city um and it's declining for everybody in every neighborhood listen thank you very much for your time on that this morning thanks for having me that's Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young talking about the graffiti found over the weekend. Actually, uh, the operators of Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden woke up on Sunday and found it there. It was just the Kiefer Street uh, wall, the one that faces Kiefer Street there, was just marred with a pretty large amount of graffiti. And yeah, it is shocking and it was it was sad to see. So what can be done about it? Does the city of Vancouver need to crack down, do something like what Nanaimo did, which is where they went after the prolific taggers and essentially took them to civil court and said, you know, you're going to have to pay for this damage. We're going to come after you for this. So do you think this is starting to merit a crackdown in the city of Vancouver? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Let us know what you think. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
focused. Now, we know the pandemic has had an impact on, well, everything in our lives, right? We've got a lot of uncertainty, a lot of pandemic fatigue. And what that has also meant is that our confidence in our personal finances has also gone way down. This is the latest MNP Consumer Debt Index. It's conducted quarterly by Ipsos on behalf of MNP. And essentially what it's telling us is that compared to the last quarter, far fewer British Columbians are confident that they can cover comfortably their living expenses in the next year. And they are more concerned about their current level of debt. 42% of people said that. So we thought, let's break it down a little bit more. Linda Paul joins us now, a licensed insolvency trustee with MMP Limited in the Lower Mainland. Linda, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What did this result? What did these results tell you? Um, it's it's still a lot of the stuff we've been hearing over the last two years. There's still a lot of uncertainty, as you mentioned, with the pandemic, and that affects all aspects of life, even more so uh, finances, because with um, another wave of business closures, reduce, reduced working hours, and job loss, and as well as health concerns related to COVID. Um, People are feeling a lot. There's more of a pinch in their monthly budget. Right. I'm thinking that at the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like there was a lot of working together, right? Even credit card companies, everybody, there was a lot of leeway. That leeway seems to be gone now. It is. We're seeing a lot more phone calls to our office for people that are experiencing financial difficulty. And that is the silver lining in all of this, that there is help available. There are licensed insolvency trustees that are regulated by the provincial government, and everybody can obtain a free and confidential assessment of their debt situation. So the good news is, although we're feeling these stressors, there is help available. Uh, Let's talk about some of the results of the survey, though, that concerned you. I mean, the one that I saw, nearly half, 45% of people reporting that they are $200 away or less from not being able to meet all of their financial obligations. Yeah, that is not a lot of wiggle room in people's budgets. Um, And we're not even seeing, that's with interest rates staying at their current rate. So I know we're all experiencing and noticing the cost of living has gone up. There's a lot of inflation going on right now, the cost of food, just basic necessities, fuel to get to and from work are on the rise. And we've been fortunate for a while because interest rates have not risen So um, once interest rates rise, then we'll see even less disposable income in everybody's uh, monthly budgets. Yeah, do you think that's what did it then? All this talk about inflation, seeing those prices go up because of supply chain issues, did that hit home for a lot of people? Yes, I believe that we're all experiencing that and we're we're hearing about it so much and now we're seeing it firsthand when we go to the grocery store and when we go to fill up our vehicles. Have we seen something like this uh, before, Linda? Like, is this a a cyclical thing or are there concerns here, like red flags that you say, hey, this is new? Um, it's It's a bit more intense now. It's not new. I mean, we were helping individuals with their finances before the pandemic hit. And what we're seeing now is a hesitation from people to get the help that they need, um, which is unfortunate because the sooner you reach out for help, the more options you have available to you. And I'm hoping now with it being Blue Monday, it tends to be a day that people um, look closer at the things in their lives that are are contributing to them feeling down. And for a lot of people, that's their finances. And especially this time of year when you see credit card bills rolling in after the holidays, it gives, it's a, 
a bit sobering for people to see now what they have to deal with, the fallout of, of holiday season and all those expenses that go along with that. Do you think, I feel like a lot of people thought, oh, it's going to get better, oh, it's going to get better, and perhaps because just didn't, it's gotten people perhaps more and more trapped over the pandemic. It has, and uh, I mean, we've, we heard about the Omicron variant coming, and we, we knew it was a possibility, but I don't think anybody thought it would um, be this, that it would cause us or spin us into closures because we are so close to coming out of the pandemic and having a bit more freedoms or getting a bit back to normal, that the normal that we were used to pre-pandemic. So I think that's got a lot more British Columbians concerned because of the, that, that's that next wave of business closures and how that affects their bottom line each month. Right. Are people willing to talk about it, Linda? Like, what, is it difficult to get them to open up on this topic? It's, there's a lot of shame attached um, to people or people are feel when, when I talk to them about their finances. A lot of people that we deal with have never, ever missed a payment. So it's something very new to them. And it's, it's very um, distressing when you don't know what your options are, when you, you're hit with the reality of not being able to make ends meet. Um, some people look to other um, options to borrow. So then you get into high interest um, payday loans um, and credit cards are higher interest. So once you get into that cycle of borrowing at a higher interest rate or those short-term loans, um, it then becomes even more difficult to get out of that cycle of borrowing. Um, So yeah, it is a lot of people attach their sense of self-worth to how they're doing financially. So it's, it's um, it's very difficult for people to have to come to terms with that. So when you look at these results, what does that tell you about what do you think how the next year is going to go for people? It's difficult to say. Um, it depends on the interest rates and, and how that um, plays out. A lot of people, as I mentioned, are hesitating and they're waiting to see what happens instead of taking an active role in fixing what's wrong with their finances. And those are the conversations I have with people is that um, is that the, the only way to get things or to make things better is to, is to get the help you, they need. Is that, that's the problem, right? People have us taking that first step. But even if they're not at that point now where, um, you know, it is terrible and they can't meet their obligations, are there still things that they can do? Oh, for sure. I mean, the first step really is to just is to look at what you're doing each month. I think a lot of us have gotten comfortable with, with just tapping and swiping and, and not as many people look at their bank statements anymore. They look at their finances as closely as they should. So the, really the first step um, that everybody can do is just budgeting, is to look at where your money's going and then make decisions and look at those areas where you're spending money where you didn't really realize how much you were spending and try and make some changes in those areas. Lots to work on there. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Linda Paul is a in- licensed insolvency trustee with MMP Limited in the Lower Mainland. Lot- this the survey is getting a lot of headlines this morning, and I can see why, because there's a lot of concerns about their British Columbians and their confidence in their personal finances has really gone down. 46% of the people in this survey are not confident that they can cover their living expenses for this year. That is up 10 points from the last time they did this survey. Nearly half report that they are $200 away or less from not being able to meet all their financial obligations. That's also an increase of 7% from the last quarter that they did this survey. Four in 10 said they're concerned about their current level of debt. And about 26% 
said they are confident in their ability to cope with unexpected events without increasing their debt burden. That's actually gone down. So more people had been feeling that, you know, in the last quarter when they did the survey versus now. And two out of 10 believe that their current debt situation is worse than it was a year ago. That's actually gone up six points from the last time they did this survey too. Lots there, I think, for us to think about over the next few months. Lots of people in this kind of situation too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.